section three of heroines of fiction by william dean howells this librivox recording is in the public domain two heroines of maria edgeworth's few figures in literary history appeal to the remembrance so pathetically as the author of evelina she had many trials which she bore with sweetness and patience her blessings were mainly from her gift of being content with little and of overprising any kindness people did her as if it were the effect of extraordinary virtue in them indeed fanny burney was evelina she had not only written herself into the character of that heroine but she had so thoroughly written herself out in it that she seemed not to have had the stuff for another heroine left in her nature or if this is going too far it is certain that neither cecilia nor camilla makes herself remembered like evelina as a real personality one cecilia was written while the author of evelina was still miss burney and before she entered the service of the queen camilla was written long after she had left that service and was published after she had become the wife of the emigre noble d'arblay in cecilia she was not yet so overweighted by the fear in favour of the great dr johnson that she wished to write her novels as he would have written them and the language if not quite the language of life is often easy gay and natural the mighty lexicographer was not to do his worst with her diction till many years later in camilla where he prevailed with an effect which the image of a fawn advancing with the gait of a hippopotamus feebly suggests though in more vital things camilla is far from a mistaken performance all three of the Bernie d'arblay novels are on the same ground they have mainly to do with the london of rank and fashion and the london of trade and vulgarity but a good part of the action passes in the country and another good part in the several english spas whose waters were then the mode and whose pump-rooms are the scenes of so much love-making in contemporary fiction but in both cecilia and camilla the nominal heroines are of a less engaging a less amusing quality cecilia is a girl of much more sense than evelina she has wit and she has beauty and yet somehow she fails to take the heart as evelina does she moves in a world much more ascertained in its characteristics through a much more ingenious intrigue a cloud of genteel company at a dozen different places is suggested vivid and amusing figures swarm in the pages of the novel there are indeed only too many of them for remembrance though probably no one who has met such a type of agreeable rattle as miss lerolle will have quite forgotten her or her antitype of supercilious passivity miss leeson that lady honoria who likes getting her father angry because he makes such funny faces and swears so divertingly when he is in a temper is perhaps not so justifiably dear to the fancy but she outlives most of the serious personages in the reader's remembrance in the handling of all a sense of the author's maturing art grows upon the critic and in fact the cecilia as a novel is as much superior to the evelina which preceded it as it is to the camilla which followed it two it is always possible of course that evelina might have eventuated in camilla 
even if the author had not spent five or six years as the queen's tirewoman in the narcotic neighbourhood of royalty the tendency which richardson had given to the best english fiction and which is so strongly felt in the vicar of wakefield might have persisted in fanny burney's novels and overweighted them at last though she had remained in the world of literature and looked on uninterruptedly at the world of fashion society was then so bad not in its standards but in its indifference to them that all decent writers had it on their consciences to better it to their utmost by the force of imaginary examples fiction had not yet conceived of the supreme ethics which consist in portraying life truly and letting the lesson take care of itself after a hundred years this conception is not yet very clear to many novelists or what is worse to their critics and the novel to save itself alive from the contempt and abhorrence in which the most of good people once held it had to be good in the fashion of the sermon rather than in the fashion of the drama it felt its way slowly and painfully by heavy sloughs of didacticism and through dreary tracts of moral sentiment to the standing it now has and we ought to look back at its flounderings not with wonder that it floundered so long but that it ever arrived in fact it did not flounder so very long and it arrived at what is still almost an ideal perfection in the art of jane austen but first it had to pass through the school of maria edgeworth who was as severe a disciplinarian as ever the lighter-minded muses came under they have long since had their revenge poor things and she has had to pay for her severity in the popular superstition which still prevails that she was all precept all principle all preaching nothing could be more mistaken as any one may prove who will turn to her entertaining novels of english fashionable life her faithful and sympathetic sketches of irish character high and low it is known that tourgenieff from his pleasure in her irish stories conceived the notion of making like studies of russian conditions that to this influence the world owes the notes of a sportsman and that the russian serfs from the influence of that book with the czar finally owed their emancipation fame could have brought maria edgeworth's noble spirit no sweeter consolation than such an event she would have counted such an indirect effect of her work infinitely beyond the inspiration of such a consummate artist as turgenieff but her long life ended just before our century had reached its fiftieth year and thirty years before the serfs were freed she began author well back in the eighteenth century but she began novelist distinctly within the nineteenth as her castle rank rent appeared in eighteen hundred and one there can be no dispute concerning this fact and no one who will read that capital story or almost any other novel of hers can question her right to stand with the foremost in nineteenth-century fiction by virtue of many things besides her priority in time such a reader will feel it his privilege his highest pleasure to help reverse the sentence which relegates this artist to the sad society of the mere sermoners she did preach there is no denying that but she also pictured life so faithfully that scott could wish for nothing greater than miss edgeworth's wonderful power of vivifying all her persons and making them live as beings in your mind 
she knew her ireland closely lovingly humorously down to the last whimsicality of the tatterdemalion peasantry and the last eccentricity of the reckless jovial gentry but she knew her england too and the scenes of london fashion in her books are as graphic as fanny burney's indeed it cannot be said that those london stories which have ireland for a background are better than those which deal solely with english interests and characters the absentee and its kind are of inferior aesthetic quality for in these the author has a moral to enforce a social principle to preach and in the others she has only character to paint and personal conduct to portray for this reason such a novel as belinda is a better test of her powers than the absentee after all there is no situation so universally appealing to the sympathy and the fancy as that which miss burney chose in evelina and cecilia and which miss edgeworth again chose in belinda a young girl gently bred and coming up for the first time from the country to view the world of london society with innocent astonished eyes what could be sweeter more suggestive more abundant in exciting chance than this three belinda portman is no such ingenue as evelina she is of a far more sophisticated good sense even than cecilia whose more reasoned and tempered innocence she rather partakes she has a very worldly-minded mrs selina stanhope for her aunt who at bath arranges her invitation for a london season from lady delacour and supplies her with a store of mundane maxims such as mrs stanhope had found effectual in managing the matrimonial campaigns of five other nieces the first interesting quality in belinda is that she has not the wish to profit by this dark wisdom of mrs stanhope's but early in her london career a mortifying accident acquaints her with the fact that she is supposed to be there to further these matchmaking schemes of her aunt she is already in love with one of the young men she hears talking her over and with the hurt to her girlish dignity and delicacy she begins to think and to reflect from that hour her evolution into a woman of good sense and good will of magnanimous impulses and generous actions is probably and entertainingly accomplished by the author with unfailing confidence in an apparently inexhaustible knowledge of the london world what this world was how dissipated unprincipled brutal reckless steeped in debt and drink has never been more frankly shown the moral is always present in the picture and it is too often applied with inartistic directness but it is not always so applied there are abundant moments of pure drama when the character is expressed in the action and though much of the motive that ought to be seen is stated still enough of it is seen to constitute the story of a work of art the author proves herself in all her books an aesthetic force she was perverted in her artistic instincts by false ideals of duty but she knew human nature and when she would allow herself to do so she could represent life with masterly power she does not get belinda fully before the reader without many needless devices to deepen the intrigue and many tiresome lectures to enforce the lesson but she does give at last the full sense of a beautiful girl who gains rather than loses in delightfulness by growing wiser and better 
discreet belinda has always been but at first she is discreet for herself only and at last she is wise for others as well a fair half of the book might be thrown away with the effect of twice enriching what was left perhaps two-thirds might be parted with to advantage certainly all that does not relate to belinda's friendship with lady delacour and her love for clarence harvey would not be missed by the reader who likes art better than artifice and prefers to make his own applications of the facts the friendship between belinda and lady delacour is more important than the love between belinda and clarence but if the story were reduced to the truly wonderful study of lady delacour's passionate and distorted nature she and not belinda would be the heroine of belinda as it is it is she who has the greater fascination for the experienced witness and for any student of womanhood the dramatic portrayal of her jealousy must appeal as a masterpiece almost unique in that sort for the domestic situation in lady delacour's household is promptly developed through the mysterious contradictions that cloud her conduct the wild gaiety the listless melancholy the moody despair for some days after belinda's arrival in town she heard nothing of lord delacour his lady never mentioned his name except once accidentally as she was showing miss portman the house the first time belinda ever saw his lordship he was dead drunk in the arms of two footmen who were carrying him upstairs to his bedroom his lady who was just returned from ranelagh passed him by on the landing-place with a look of sovereign contempt what is the matter who is this said belinda only the body of lord delacour said her ladyship don't look so shocked and amazed belinda don't look so new child this funeral of my lord's intellects is to me a nightly or added her ladyship looking at her watch and yawning i believe i should say a daily ceremony six o'clock i protest the next morning after a very late breakfast lord delacour entered the room lord delacour sober my dear said her ladyship to miss portman by way of introducing him the cat and dog life which this couple lead is very unreservedly portrayed and belinda is so far deceived as not to suppose that they can be in love with each other in spite of all my lord's days and nights are given to debauchery his ladies to the wildest dissipation at balls and routs one faintly imagines what a rout was and gay parties at those public resorts which were once so much the fashion in london or at least in london novels where from vauxhall to ranelagh from ranelagh to the pantheons from the pantheon to almox there is a perpetual glitter of their misleading lights on leaving the masquerade where belinda has overheard that killing talk about herself among the young men of her circle she repeats it in an anguish of shame to her friend as they drive away from lady singleton's to the pantheon in their respective disguises of the tragic and the comic muse and is this all cried lady delacour lord my dear you must either give up living in the world or expect to hear yourself and your aunts and your cousins and your friends from generation to generation abused every hour in the day by their friends and your friends tis the common course of things now you know what a multitude of obedient servants dear creatures and very sincere and most affectionate friends i have do you think i'm fool enough to imagine that they would care the hundredth part of a straw if i were this minute thrown into the red or the black sea 
the carriage stopped at the pantheon to belinda the night appeared long and dull the commonplace wit of chimney-sweepers and gypsies the antics of harlequins the graces of flower-girls and cleopatras had not power to amuse her for her thoughts still recurred to that conversation which had given her so much pain how happy you are lady delacour said she when they got into the carriage to go home to have such an amazing flow of spirits amazing you might well say if you knew all said lady delacour and she heaved a deep sigh threw herself back in the carriage let fall her mask and was silent it was broad daylight and belinda had a full view of her countenance which was a picture of despair her ladyship started up and exclaimed if i had served myself with half the zeal i have served the world i should not now be thus forsaken but it is all over now i am dying belinda gazed at lady delacour and repeated the word dying i tell you i am dying said her ladyship at home she bade belinda follow her to her dressing-room come in what is it you are afraid of said she belinda went in and lady delacour shut and locked the door there was no light except what came from the candle which lady delacour held in her hand belinda as she looked around saw nothing but a confusion of linen rags vials some empty some full and she perceived there was a strong smell of medicines lady delacour looked from side to side of the room without seeming to know what she was in search of she then in a species of fury wiped the paint from her face and returning to belinda held the candle so as to throw the light full on her livid features which formed a horrid contrast with her gay fantastic dress you are shocked belinda said she but as yet you have seen nothing look here bearing half her bosom belinda sunk back into a chair lady delacour flung herself on her knees before her am i humbled am i wretched enough the story of belinda's friendship for the miserable woman from this moment on is imagined with a knowledge of human nature and a divination of its nobler possibilities worthy of tolstoy though it is wrought with an art indefinitely more fallible miss edgeworth was not only in herself very inconstantly an artist but as is well known she subordinated her judgment to that of her honoured father whom she allowed to meddle with her work and mar it in the cause of good morals as much as he would it is but fair to lay to the charge of her well-willing ill-witting parent at least half of the crude and clumsy didacticism with which belinda's fine nature is unfolded in her efforts to serve and to save lady delacour but perhaps the crude and clumsy mechanism of the affair is all miss edgeworth's own we may easily grant this and still in the dramatic moments find enough evidence of her power to prove her a great artist lady delacour of course believes that she has a cancer and she has put herself in the hands of a quack who preys upon her fears her secret is known only to her waiting woman till she herself betrays it to belinda whom she binds to her by the most solemn vows of silence but the girl can find no peace till she has got lady delacour's leave to speak of it to a physician who is of course edgeworthianly overwise and overgood and as belinda has not lived for several weeks under the roof of lord delacour without surprising in him some traits of kindness for his wife she wins lady delacour's consent to let him know that some great calamity is threatening her 
belinda sets herself with all her innate discreetness to make them friends but she does not discreet as she is manage this without rousing the jealousy of lady delacour which finds food in her returning love for her husband seeing belinda and lord delacour on such increasingly good terms in her interest she can only believe that they wish to be on better in their own as soon as she is out of the way as the story was always to end well however the cancer proves no cancer and is cured with very slight scientific attention lady delacour is reconciled to her husband without losing her friend and belinda is duly married to clarence harvey whom she has been in love with from the beginning such a meagre resume of merely one order of its events does no justice to the many-sided interest of the novel and its rich abundance of characterization which sometimes accuses itself of caricature but which probably embodies a presentation of fashionable life at the beginning of our century faithfuler than it can now appear still the jealousy of lady delacour though but one interest of the story becomes in its finer artistic treatment the chief interest and the scene in which it betrays itself becomes the greatest moment of the drama the episode is almost altogether admirable but its climax sufficiently suggests the whole encounter between the unsuspecting belinda and lady delacour when her passion is fired by the girl's suppression of certain passages in a letter from her aunt stanhope giving some worldly advice which her ladyship ironically congratulates belinda upon not needing the rapid unconnected manner in which lady delacour spoke the hurry of her motions the quick suspicious angry gleams of her eye her laugh her unintelligible words all conspired at this moment to give belinda the idea that her intellects were suddenly disordered she went towards her with the intention of soothing her by caresses but at her approach lady delacour pushed the table on which she had been writing from her with violence started up flung back the veil which fell over her face as she rose and darted upon belinda a look which fixed her to the spot where she stood belinda's blood ran cold she had no longer any doubt that this was insanity she shut the penknife that lay upon the table and put it in her pocket cowardly creature cried lady delacour and her countenance changed to an expression of ineffable contempt what is it you fear that you should injure yourself sit down for heaven's sake listen to your friend to belinda my friend my belinda cried lady delacour oh belinda you whom i have so loved so trusted the tears rolled fast down her painted cheeks she wiped them hastily away but so roughly that she became a strange and ghastly spectacle unconscious of her disordered appearance she rushed past belinda who vainly attempted to stop her threw up the sash and stretching herself far out of the window gasped for breath miss portman drew her back and closed the window saying the rouge is all off your face my dear lady delacour you are not fit to be seen rouge not fit to be seen at such a time as this to talk to me in this manner o oh, niece of mrs stanhope dupe dupe that i am 
belinda tries to reason with lady delacour's jealousy which takes the form of ironical meekness only to burst out again in envenomed accusation you are goodness itself and gentleness and prudence personified you know perfectly how to manage her whom you fear you have driven to madness but tell me good gentle prudent miss portman why need you dread so much that i should go mad nobody would believe me whatever i said and would not this be almost as if i were dead and buried no your calculations are better than mine the poor mad wife would yet stand between you and the fond object of your secret soul a coronet oh belinda do not you see that a coronet cannot confer happiness i have seen it long i pity you from the bottom of my soul said belinda bursting into tears lady delacour cannot believe the girl is leaving her house when she leaves the room she determines to balk the hope of being pressed to stay which she imagines in belinda and when some people call she swiftly repairs her looks and goes to receive them fresh rouged and beautifully dressed she was performing her part to a brilliant audience when belinda entered the drawing-room you dine with lady anne miss portman i understand though you talk of running away from me i am with all due humility so confident of the irresistible attractions of this house that i defy oakley park and all its charms so miss portman instead of adieu i shall only say au revoir adieu lady delacour said belinda with a look and tone that struck her ladyship to the heart all her suspicions all her pride all her affected gaiety forsook her she flew after miss portman stopped her at the head of the stairs and exclaimed my dearest belinda are you gone my best my only friend say you are not gone for ever say you will return adieu repeated belinda we are told that she broke from lady delacour with a heart full of pity for her but sure of the right and wisdom of her course and nothing in the whole scene between them is more finely ascertained than the delicate dignity and goodness with which belinda behaves in this she is worthy to be the heroine of her own story and though she must divide the honours with lady delacour in the dramatic moment she has the heroine's true supremacy as a subtler study of character and a newer type the intensely emotional nature like lady delacour vivid violent reckless has been often done and it is always fascinating but it has seldom been so well done as by miss edgeworth who with a few touches of analysis has allowed it to express itself yet after all a nature like belinda's ruled by principles and bound by scruples the nature of a lady is far more difficult to do End of section three